electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this Friday on The Exchange, 372,000 jobs added in June. That brings the total to more than 2.7 million since January. And separate data shows consumers are still spending. We're definitely not in recession right now. So what does it mean for markets and the Fed? Meanwhile, Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter reportedly in serious jeopardy. Is this the time it finally falls apart? What happens to Twitter and to Tesla shares if it does? Plus, with rates back on the rebound today, mortgage rates are set to hover around 6%. What does it all mean for housing in the months ahead? We're going to look at the stocks, the story, and the trades in three different parts of that sector. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with the market reaction to these numbers, Dom. The market reaction right now, Kelly, is just about how many different cross-currents there are and how many different storylines positive or negative. I know you've got the tracker coming out. It is Friday after all. But that real kind of play out, the tug of war, is what we're seeing in markets today. Now, to be honest, there hasn't been a massive amount of action. I will tell you that the range for the S&P 500 at the highs of the session, we were up 16 points at the lows of the session, down 33. We are currently down just about 18. 38.83 is the last trade there. The Dow Industrial is down roughly 100 points, 31,284 in the NASDAQ composite, down 71 points, 11,550. But again, we've seen fractional gains today as well as fractional losses. We're tilting a little bit more to that negative side right now. There is one place, however, that we are seeing a little bit more general positivity, and these names all have something in common. McKesson Corp up 3.5%. Centene, same thing. Moderna, Align Technology, and the healthcare ETF. All of these guys representing that healthcare sector. It's been a strong point for arguably a few weeks now, if not a few months. And by the way, over a one-month basis, this is the only sector in the S&P 500 that is positive. Again, over that one-month period. So watch those healthcare names still getting more attention from traders and investors. And maybe emblematic of that tug of war I just mentioned before at the top of the show here. This idea of the ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK, it's down 1% now, but was solidly in the green earlier today. Again, along with that rest of the market, trying to figure out whether the inflation data, the jobs data, means that the economy is not in or could be going into a recession. Valuations, how do they play with interest rates? All that's playing out right now with the ARK Innovation ETF. But by the way, Kelly, at one point today, many of the stocks that go into this ETF, like some of those high beta Less profitable, high growth names were very much positive, but now tilted the net, the opposite side. We'll see if that trend continues this afternoon, Kel. Back over I here. know. It's emblematic, though, of what's going on with the market. Dom, thanks. Well, he mentioned the data tracker. We've got our Friday update, and it's a labor market edition today because we have had a string of reports this week. So let's take a look back at what we've learned. We had on Wednesday the ISM employment gauge for the service sector. It dropped into contraction to 47.4. This is a momentum gauge. It's not an actual number yet. It did echo what the manufacturing gauge showed on Friday. But yesterday, some better news. The so-called 
Jolt's report here showed job openings remained well above 11 million in May. Jobless claims while they rose to a six-month high still near a historic low. Challenger Gray and Christmas, meantime, said layoffs were up, but not yet up to levels consistent with recession, up about 57 percent from a month ago. Now, today, perhaps the clearest signal that the labor market is still strong. Payrolls rose 372,000 in June. The unemployment rate steady at 3.6 percent. And earnings came in hotter than expected. So is the Fed definitely going to hike another 75 basis points at its meeting in a few weeks? Let's ask Michelle Meyer. She's the chief U.S. economist at MasterCard Economics Institute. Great to see you again, Michelle. What's your read on all this? Same to you, Kelly. And I think it's really a story that the labor market remains strong. This was a really positive report. Healthy job creation, broad-based job creation, private sector jobs are now above the pre-COVID level, and the unemployment rate was able to hold at 3.6%. Wage growth was strong. I mean, some modest slowing in the last few months relative to where we were, you know, call it six months ago in terms of wage growth. But I think it really should create some you know, comfort that the economy still has some momentum here. And what do you take from the Fed speak that we've had? Raphael Bostic on CNBC this morning, Waller and Bullard yesterday. They, again, maybe this is a hawkish group, especially Waller and Bullard, but they definitely talked still about this 75 basis points being on the table. And that makes perfect sense to me because the Fed is still in catch-up mode. They were intentionally you know, behind the curve for a period of time, maybe more so than they would have liked. Inflation has increased quite meaningfully. You are dealing with an environment where inflation pressures have broadened out. They've filtered into inflation expectations and to psychology. So they're trying to fight that, and they're trying to fight that as quickly as they can to get rates to the appropriate level, to kind of that neutral rate, whatever it might be. Um, so they're, they're in, a, in a little bit of a rush to do that. And I think that's being reflected in the Fed commentary. At the same time, they're trying to rebalance the economy overall, right? So they want to see some slowing in the economy. They want to get some of that inflation pressure off, but they don't want to tip it into a recession. That's the real challenge. Absolutely. And Annetta Markowska over at Jeffries was saying she looks at all this and still sees the funds rate, you know, the overnight lending rate basically going to 4% by the middle of next year. Now, there's no way it would make sense to have a 10-year at 3% if that's true, unless people see the economy dramatically slowing, you know, recession, something like that. So I just yeah. wonder if there's still a reckoning to be had in the bond market where we haven't yet decided whether we can skirt recession or not. And it seems like we could easily move a, a full point in either direction, you know, yeah. depending on how the data come in in the, in the months ahead. Absolutely. I mean, look at the bond market volatility in the last few weeks. I think investors are trying to sort out what the right path will be for the economy and for the Fed and how you get to that balance, whatever that, again, might be. So, you know, to me, a 4% Fed funds rate is probably high. You know, to, for the Fed to actually get to that point, they would have to do so because the economy is so much stronger than they had envisioned. And it's taking that much more to really bring down inflation. And I would argue the recent inflation data, and we'll see what Tuesday you know, brings in terms of CPI, but the recent inflation signals have been a little bit more encouraging, right? You're seeing yeah. some you know, uh, slowing in wage growth, commodity prices are coming down, inflation expectations are coming down. So you know, maybe we're getting a little bit relief here where the Fed doesn't have to really push quite as dramatically. And you also, uh, you're right, exactly. Uh, you guys have some <laughs> uh, spending data, more 
um, which we call high-frequency spending data. We're always looking for that on the U.S. consumer. What can you tell us about how they're spending, where they're spending, especially lately? Absolutely. We're monitoring this all in real time, very actively with the MasterCard spending pulse data. And what we're seeing is nominal spending, actual dollars putting out there into the economy has been continuing to grow at a quite a trend-like pace, pretty, pretty healthy overall. Now, of course, within that, you're seeing some differences in terms of how consumers are allocating their dollars. There's a bit of consumer choice occurring where in the areas where they've seen some really dramatic inflation shocks, they're, you know, maybe cutting back a little bit in how much they're spending there and looking to spend in other areas which are a bit more affordable. Um, so take gasoline, for example. The huge increase in gas prices has actually led to a drop in usage, um, which is which shows that the consumer is able to navigate this to some extent. Now, it's, it's creating discomfort. They're very aware of these price shocks, but they're still able to spend and they're still able to make these decisions, which I think is really fascinating to watch in real time. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking through. We just showed some of the figures. But, you know, department stores where we're seeing eight and a half percent growth from last year and 21 percent growth from 2019. So there is still broad spending happening, um, you know, in, in these parts of the economy. Michelle, thanks for bringing this all to us. We appreciate it. You got it, Kelly. Good Thank to you. See you. Michelle Meyer with MasterCard. Now, our next guest says the markets need to adjust to a new reality here, and it's one where inflation could be higher than expected for a while and one in which the small caps could come out the winners. Let's turn to Nancy Pryle. She's the co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. Nancy, good to see you. I mean, do you sort of fundamentally agree with what Michelle and, and the spending data and all that is telling us about the economy? Yes, we do very much. I mean, we think that the job numbers today, as well as some of the layoff announcements and the jolts data yesterday, point to an economy that is still pretty strong. That gives the Fed some runway to continue on their path of raising rates in order to break the back of inflation. But we are very encouraged by these early indications that we're seeing in terms of both the commodity prices as well as um, some of the other indicators and some of the wage gains, that the future direction of inflation will not be as high as what we've seen. And as you know, markets look forward. What matters more, where are expectations? If expectations can come down, that will be very positive. And, um, and so we think that that provides an outlook where we can have continued modest economic growth but perhaps stronger profits than what the stocks are currently forecasting. And why do small caps, which had a great day yesterday, why, does, why do they jump out to you at a time like this? Well, first of all, valuations. Small caps are now selling at roughly 12 times forward estimates, about 14 times trailing estimates. That's well below the multiple on the S&P 500, which has come down as well from 21 times at the beginning of the year down to a little under 16 times now. But certainly, it appears that the small cap sector has really discounted a lot of the slowdown. Secondly, what we see with the small cap sector is these companies, we believe, are better positioned to weather this current um, situation. And what I mean by that is small cap stocks in general are more levered to spending on services rather than goods. They are more levered to the domestic economy, so we don't have to worry as much about the weakness in Europe. They're more levered to strong energy prices and less likely to be negatively impacted 
by strong energy prices. And then finally, the innovation that is still continuing in our economy and that will drive growth over the next decade is something that small cap stocks can definitely take advantage of. All of that said, it is weird to me that we're talking about a period where growth is outperforming. A lot of people expect that to continue. And yet we're calling for small caps, which are tr traditionally more of a value trade, like you said, to be a place to go as well. I mean, can growth and small caps can rally at the same time? Um, we actually think they can. And one of the interesting things I noted in June is that perhaps, and I don't know if it's that growth is the new value or that value is the new growth, but if you look <laughs> at the rebalance in the Russell 2000 um, indices, particularly the growth and the value, what we see is that technology and healthcare traditional growth sectors have actually increased their weighting in the Russell 2000 value because mm -hmm. of valuation. Um, and what's gone up in the Russell 2000 growth are actually traditional value sectors like utilities, real estate, um, and energy. So we think that there is a balance here of good growth at reasonable valuations. That's the way to make money as a stock picker over the next couple of quarters. Very fascinating. Any final words other than small caps, places where you would direct people to look? Well, one of the interesting things is people are very worried about earnings. We had a company last night, MRC Global, that pre-announced a much better than expected quarter. Now they are in the energy patch, um, so they're benefiting from what's going on there, but they're also benefiting from the energy transition where they have a vision called, they call it diet. Um, it's downstream industrial and energy transition. Not only did they beat on the top line, but margins are much stronger than people expected, and they're raising guidance on both the bottom and top line going forward. That's what we want to find in this environment. Yeah, the whole theme the last couple months has been under the radar. You know, whether it's less familiar stocks, smaller cap ones, what you're saying about MRC is a perfect uh, example of that. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Nancy Pryle with Essex. Coming up is Elon Musk's Twitter deal about to get clipped. We'll bring you the latest from Sun Valley and the potential fallout if the agreement does fall through. Plus, the problems at West Coast ports aren't over yet. We're live in Oakland with the fallout for farmers, and we have exclusive reporting on how congestion on the tracks is derailing trade. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets once again. We're seeing those small caps um, kind of in the middle of the, no, let's call it an underperformance. Uh, they're down six-tenths of a percent today after a strong session yesterday. Dow's down two-tenths, 10-year just below 3.1%. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. 
See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter could be in jeopardy, according to reports from The Washington Post. The stock is the worst performer in the S&P today, down about 4%. It's even trading back to below where it was when Musk first disclosed his 9% stake three months ago. It's trading just over $37 a share. Julia Borson is live in Sun Valley with the very latest for us. New York Times columnist and CNBC contributor Jim Stewart has the impact on the media landscape. And Evercore ISI Senior Managing Director Mark Mahaney is here with his trades on Twitter today. Welcome to everybody. Julia, first, let's get the details. And what's the buzz about this out in Sun Valley? Well, the buzz here is that Elon Musk has arrived. He got here to Sun Valley to the Allen Co. Conference last night. He's going to be speaking tomorrow in an interview um, with Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI. So, of course, people are curious if anything's going to come up in that conversation about Twitter. But they're perhaps even more curious to see, Kelly, if he is talking to Parag Agarwal, the CEO of Twitter. Twitter's CFO, uh, Ned Siegel, is also here. So the question is, what kind of conversations happen at the Duck Pond here at the Sun Valley Resort. But I think really, you know, what I'm hearing from a range of sources here, Kelly, is that they do believe that Twitter is confident that it has legal standing in enforcing the deal as it was made with Elon Musk for $54.20 a share, and that Twitter is willing to, to take this to court if necessary, if Musk tries to get out of this deal. And I've heard from a couple of people that they don't think the courts will look kindly on Musk in his case because he did waive the rights to do certain um, types of due diligence. Right. Um, so, so that's certainly something that is working in Twitter's fa- favor, Kelly. Jim, do you think the deal gets done? Because the market has given it a big, not a vote of confidence right now. I mean, we're, what are we, 50 percent below the offer price? No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I think um, after the initial impulsive outburst, um, Musk has clearly been erecting one possible exit scenario after another. Uh, the deal, as he himself admitted, it was never rational to begin with. He, he never said that he expected Billy to make money from it. It makes no strategic sense from Twitter's perspective. It's the emotional, impulsive Musk speaking out. And I think one of the things that's confusing to investors and everyone else is that there are two Musks here. There's the impulsive Musk, the emotional Musk, who I think still would like to own it. And then there's the rational Musk, and his advisors are telling him that this is crazy. It makes no sense. And so the question is, who's ultimately going to win out? But I, just about everybody I talk to thinks that Musk is never going to complete this deal. Mark Mahaney, what do you think? Um, I hope the deal gets uh, concluded. I don't think Twitter Twitter's board has any choice other than to uh, extract the, the the deal at fifty four twenty. That's their fiduciary responsibility now. So I, if the deal doesn't get done, this is going to get dragged out in the courts for a long uh, period of time. It'd be very unfortunate. Uh, I think uh, Twitter is a unique asset. It is, you know, it generates $5 billion a year in revenue. It's highly influential. And by the way, it generates positive free cash flow. There's a good business here. And I hate to see something like this uh, disrupted because I'm sure it's being disrupted internally. So I, my guess is that the deal does go through at the end because this is an asset that uh, Elon Musk in his heart of hearts cares deeply about. But if it doesn't go through, this is going to get dragged through the courts for years. Mark, just yesterday there was news of, what was it, layoffs on some uh, another part of the uh, Twitter team. I think we've seen executive departures 
just why press ahead with all of this if the company itself isn't sure that this deal is going to happen? That's a good question, Kelly. I'm not sure why they did that, but I will tell you, we've seen uh, kind of across the consumer tech landscape, you know, layoff or hiring freeze upon hiring freeze is one of the reasons we cut estimates across the board for all uh, internet names, including Twitter uh, earlier this week. I mean, the companies are telling you uh, whether either through leaked memos from uh, Meta or just from their actions, uh, um, slowing down uh, hiring plans, freezing, or even cutting employees. Companies are very worried about demand trends. That's that's my read of it. So. uh, um, you know, numbers are coming down. That's my guess as to what really happened at uh, at Twitter. But it's also a sign of there's been a lot of disruption at the company, a lot of turnover just in this short period of time. You know, this deal has in some ways impaired uh, Twitter, you know, sure. near term. Certainly a reason why the board's going to, if, if they, they can't conclude this deal, this was going to drag through the courts for years. Julia, is there any way Musk is able to consummate this deal at a much lower price now? Well, look, that's something that uh, that he would have to negotiate directly with the board that has no incentive to take a lower price than what they already agreed to. So, um, it, you know, it's interesting just to, to reflect on what Mark just said is that a lot of the people here, you know, a lot of these media companies here have partnerships with Twitter. They understand the value and the potential reach of Twitter and also the idea that Twitter is not accessible to the mainstream. It's sort of there is this foreign language they use on Twitter. So, A lot of people here have said they would be really excited to see what Musk would do at Twitter. And there was some hope that Musk would go forward with this deal and make some great improvements to the platform. So um, so I think unless there is there is effective litigation, he's going to be stuck with a 5420 price. But Kelly, maybe maybe he'll he'll do the deal and um, and make the platform uh, more effective and more accessible. No, I, again, as a user myself, I, I would love to see the changes he makes because he does have a good feel for these users and kind of the, the services that they might need. Jim, what do you think? Billion dollar breakup fees? You're going to be forced to pay it some sort of smaller settlement. Where where would this play out if uh, if he doesn't take over the company? I think that, you know, while Twitter may have strong legal grounds, the sheer uh, disruption, as Mark pointed out, of litigation, the cost of litigation, there is an incentive to reach some kind of settlement. And that could be a lower price. True, he's locked in at that that higher price, but anything is negotiable. And if the alternative is he's walking away and wants to litigate for years, Twitter might agree to a somewhat lower price. And the same thing with the breakup free fee. If he really walks away and then wants to sue, saying it's their fault over these bot users, uh, you know, there may be a price less than a billion dollars where it makes sense for them to settle and put this behind them. Right, and obviously Twitter trying to give as much data as it can to say that figure is wrong. Yesterday they were saying they delete a million accounts a day that are bots. I mean, it was just a staggering amount to think about uh, as this fight goes on. We'll leave it there in limbo uh, for the time being. Thank you, everybody, for your thoughts today. We appreciate it. Uh, Julia Borston, Jim Grant, and Mark Mahaney. Still ahead, the housing ETF, the XHB, is on pace for its third straight week of gains for the first time since November. This comes as mortgage rates have dropped from their highs, but now they're starting to rise again. We'll check in on three key housing trades ahead. Plus, Germany and India are two of the largest energy players in the world, taking very different approaches to Russia's war on Ukraine with far-reaching fallout, we'll explain. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Salesforce, Disney, and Dow Inc., the biggest laggards. Only about five names are in the green right now. Healthcare trade, predominantly, as Dom mentioned off the top, UNH, Amgen, JNJ leading the way. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Crude oil is still hovering around $100 a barrel after sliding to a three-month low this week, but prices remain about 13 percent higher since the Ukraine invasion. And two of the world's biggest energy players could not be handling the situation more differently. Seema Modi is here to explain. Seema? Kelly, let's start with Germany. Uh, struggling to adjust to Russia's 60 percent cut in the natural gas flowing in through the Nord Stream pipeline. The government is dimming streetlights, shutting down pools and rationing hot water, as the FT and others report. Now, the goal is to build up stocks for the winter. Germany currently has storage levels of 63%, according to JP Morgan, with a target of 90% by the end of November. It's all taking a toll on the economy and the stock market. Germany, currently the worst performing stock market in the world right now, down about 18%, whereas the MSCI World index is down just about 15 percent. Now, on the flip side, Western nations have been quick to criticize India for increasing its purchases of Russian oil, but perhaps overlooked as the pressure that is building on the government and the prime minister there to tackle rampant inflation. Get this, for every one dollar increase in the price of oil, India's import bill rises by around $2.1 billion. That's according to estimates from Nomura. And as Frank Wisner, the former ambassador to India, told me, India's domestic stability is a key priority right now, and the prospect of the U.S. or Europe punishing India with sanctions at this point seems relatively low, given the role that India is playing in helping these nations challenge China in the East, Kelly. And maybe the clearest way to show the significance, uh, to, even to U.S. consumers here, is where would the oil or, or gasoline or energy prices be if India stopped or slowed its purchases of these barrels? Spoke to John Kilduff of at Again Capital. He put together some really interesting analysis that shows if India were to stop buying Russian energy, the price of oil would spike by around 8 to $10 a barrel. So an interesting position the country is in. In, in. in one way, yes, getting criticized by the West for financing Russia's wartime efforts by continuing to purchase its energy. Right. But at the same time, by, by doing so and taking some of that supply off the market, it's helping Americans and keeping the price lower, lower than, than it would have been. Would be. And here, I mean, the details of what's happening in Germany are are terrifying. I mean, they will get terrifying if it doesn't get much better. Rationing hot water, dimming streetlights, shutting down swimming pools. You know, the situation is dramatic. Germany's social peace is in great danger, says, you know, one of the right. people quoted in this FT piece. I mean, this is chilling stuff. It is. And, you know, in, in a way, if, it, if this were a an emerging market and you heard these type of actions being taken. I mean, we're not talking about an emerging market. Right, this is South Germany, Africa, one right. of the largest uh, nations in Europe, usually amidst the strongest, typically, at least historically. So the fact that these are type of measures they're undergoing to ensure that they're in somewhat of a stable position in the winter is certainly telling. Yeah, it's very strikingly different uh, 
responses here. Seema, thank you. Thanks. Our Seema Modi. Reminder, the CNBC Evolve Global Summit is coming up on July 13th. Speaking of energy, we're going to look at companies taking active steps to transform their organizations for the future. Jim Cramer will be speaking with Duke Energy CEO Lynn Good about the future of America's energy grid. You can register at cnbcevents.com slash evolve. Still ahead here on The Exchange, problems at the port. We've got team coverage on what role the railroads are playing in the West Coast delays, why they could become a lifeline for one crop in particular. Jane Wells is live in Oakland with more. Jane? Hi, Kelly. Of all the things we grow in California, legal and otherwise, nothing is more valuable than almonds, but getting these nuts out of this port has left the industry shell-shocked when The Exchange comes back. Welcome back. The problems at the ports aren't going away, and railroad issues are now complicating things even further. Our Lorian Larocco is here with that story. And Jane Wells is at the port of Oakland, where a billion pounds of almonds risk spoiling. Before we get to that, Lorianne, how do we get to this point? Well, it's happening, Kelly, because it, the goods are from the West Coast ports uh, are having difficulty to get to the rails. And the containers are coming in, and the weights of the ports are just insurmountable. You can see it on the latest CNBC supply chain heat map. The second column is the time in the ports. This shows you that almost all of the congestion is moderate, heavier congestion in Seattle. And here is why this is so important. If containers are sitting, and that means that they are out of pocket, it means that there are fewer containers for the next shipment, and that means that prices can go up. Yeah, and the, even the containers that are available go to the highest bidder. It drives that price uh, price spike as well. How bad is the problem right now? The problem is pretty bad. I spoke with Gene Soroka from the Port of Los Angeles, and he told me that 60% of all the containers at the port right now are destined for the rail. Hmm. And it, it's, it's really hard. And then more than half of these long-dwelling uh, containers are from are destined for the railroad. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the port of Long Beach, Mario Cadero told me that this, that we are at an inflection point as it relates to the congestion. And then moving up north, now the Pacific Northwest is very, very dependent on the rail. They have tremendous delays. And when you look at the supply chain heat map, it's red. And you've got 16 days of waiting out of the port of Seattle and eight days out of the port of Tacoma. Yeah. So a lot of this is caused by rail bottlenecks, the, yeah. another phase of this. All right. So what, what are the possible solutions here or at least a workaround? So the workaround is you've seen more logistics managers moving towards the East Coast. And we've got this great chart from Project 44 that shows you this intersection where literally the East Coast overtakes the West Coast in terms of the amount of containers that you are seeing. Wow. And so what's happening is the port of Norfolk, you actually have logistics managers using this line from Hapag Lloyd. If you have your container that goes to the port, goes on a rail, the rail then takes that container to Chicago, and then it goes back to the West Coast wow. because it's faster. The port of New York and New Jersey, 6.5% of all the new containers that are coming in were literally rerouted from the West Coast. Wow. And then when you're looking at uh, the Port of Savannah, they told me they're describing what you're seeing with, with this weight. It's tremendous amount of volumes. They're having over 180 vessels are going to call the port. And so this is what the supply chain heat map is showing us right now. And maybe a risk for the West Coast that people just get more comfortable using the East Coast facilities in the future. Yeah, trade is sticky. Once trade moves, it does not go back. Very interesting. Lorianne, thank you, or Lorianne Larocco. Let's get live to Jane Wells now. Who's out on the West Coast with the fallout? Jane? 
Hi, I'm at the Port of Oakland, Kelly. 80% of the world's almonds are grown in California. Most of them are exported, and most of them go out of this port. But growers say that nearly half of last year's export crop, over a billion pounds of almonds, are still sitting in California waiting to be shipped out, and growers don't get paid until they deliver. Every two rows that you see from down there all the way to here on both sides of the building are a shipment that was promised that didn't show up. We put it in a sack yesterday for the shipment that was supposed to come today, and it didn't come. Dave Fippen, Dave Fippen exports 90% of his crop that he processes. He's now trying to find ways around Oakland, getting his nuts shipped overland to the Port of Houston. There's a little bit of a silver lining. While almond prices are so low, the prices to sell these hulls, which go to feed dairy cattle, are selling for more than three times normal, as all animal feed is really expensive right now. Now, yes, the hulls of the almonds are selling for top dollar, but the nuts themselves, wholesale prices are way down. They're down about 20% from a year ago. Now, the situation is starting to pick up here a lot here at the Port of Oakland. Could take about a year or two, though, for things to get back to normal. And with the longshoreman's contract having expired, growers, Kelly, are more, feel more compelled than ever to find other ways to get their nuts out of the U.S. It's Back so fascinating. I mean, as someone who consumes a lot of almonds and almond butter and all that, you know, I, I appreciate that the prices are down a little from last year, but that the whole prices would be up the way there. At what point, Jane, do these nuts risk spoiling if they don't get moved? Uh, they can sit for a while. I mean, they're they're not like uh, peaches or apples. The, the almonds. The problem is, of course, is there's going to be almost you know a regular crop this year of 2.8 billion pounds. Well, that's just going to further back up the situation. They got to get these last year's almonds out before they can start shipping this year's almonds. The the plus side may be that they'll start to think more about putting more of those almonds in the domestic market to drive prices down even further. Oh, kind of like what's happening with natural gas and almond milk has to be an increasing use uh, as well that, I, well, you know, we could see impacts there on pricing, I imagine. Well, at least on the wholesale side, I went to the grocery store last night. If almonds are selling for $2 a pound wholesale, they were $10 a pound in the grocery store wow. on sale for $7.50. And I don't know if you've been to Starbucks lately, but <sighs> I'm not seeing it there. <laughs> Jane, thank you as always. Uh, microcosm of what's going on with our supply chain. Jane Wells in Oakland for us. Still ahead, it's been a rough year for home builders as higher mortgage rates and uh, rates, I should say, and rising costs all hit buyers' wallets. But one stock could be poised to outperform. According to our trader, it's about 33% off its 52-week highs. Should you buy the dip? We have that coming up right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's been up about 127, down 172. It's currently down 29, the S&P down 5, the NASDAQ down 14. So pretty small declines, all things considered, especially after the strong jobs data and rising rates today. Now, to kind of also to that point, Bitcoin is back above 21,000, almost to 22 now. It's in the green today. Uh, it's up decently since Saturday and on pace for its best week since October, in fact, which was back when it was still trading around $50,000. Still, there's been a flurry of negative headlines in the crypto ecosystem that have tanked prices re uh, recently. So we still see Bitcoin down 52% since January. Now, also down has been the Crane Shares China Internet ETF. And in fact, while RK and others are kind of snapping back, this one is 
set to post back-to-back -back weeks of losses for the first time since April. It's down 3.5% this week. Pinduoduo, JD.com, some of the biggest laggards in the NASDAQ since Monday. They're down about 7%. Now, here are some of the names hitting new all-time highs. Again, it's the healthcare theme that we've been talking about all hour. Cigna, Humana, Eli Lilly. United Therapeutics. Also, by the way, H&R Block is up uh, significantly this year. Who says energy is the only thing that's doing well? H&R is up 60% since January. It's pretty unbelievable. Cigna and Eli Lilly up about 20%. So some, some notable standouts in what's been a very uh, down market so far this year. Coming up, the housing market showing more signs of a cool down as mortgage rates hover around 6%. We've got the stocks, the story, and the trades on the builders, the lenders, and the suppliers next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Mortgage rates are climbing again today, getting back towards that June high of 6.3%. We're at 58 today. High rates and high prices have sent the NAR's Housing Affordability Index in May to its lowest level since the housing bubble in July 2006. It's slowing the market and spelling pain for housing stocks of all kinds lately. But we've got some buys and some bails across three parts of the industry today. Let's start with the builders. Uh, taking a look at the Home Builders ETF, it's down about 30% this year, with major players like Lennar, DR Horton, and NVR trading at low single-digit PEs. Let's bring in our trader today, Gina Sanchez. She's Chantico Global's CEO and a CNBC contributor. Gina, good to see you. What do you do with the builders here? What do you say? So, you know, this is an interesting time for builders. If you think about sort of your usual behavioral context, you tend to fight the war you just had. And the war we just had was the great financial crisis. That's really what's fresh in people's minds right now. And everybody is concerned that a rise in interest rates is going to cause a complete collapse uh, of, of, the, uh, of, of the home sector. Um, and the, the reality is, is the banks are in a totally different place. The help that home balance sheets are just, you know, household balance sheets are in a totally different place. And the demand, even though it's probably going to be dampened by these higher interest rates, it's not going to be killed. Um, and we are seeing continued demand even through this slump um, at places like Lennar. Even in the last uh, earnings release from Lennar, Lennar CEO basically said that they're still continuing to get very strong demand despite what is happening with interest rates. You're sounding a little bullish to me. Well, I'm not going to say, uh, <laughs> let's temper that. Um, you know, I think that, that interest rates are going to dampen demand, but, but I don't think it's going to kill the home, the home builder market the way it did, you know, a few years, uh, the way it did in, in 2008. And if you think about the lessons learned in that market, a lot of these builders, including Lennar, um, have taken an asset light strategy where instead of buying a bunch of land and then holding it until they build the homes, they have just bought land options. Right. And so that sort of asset light strategy really does protect them in a potential downturn. And so the, the Lennar is still maintaining really big margins and the supply chain is starting to open up, which expands those margins more. And so that just means that if you're holding this stock, the earnings actually don't have to get clobbered. Right. And so, OK, Lennar might be kind of your place to go in the space. But, yeah, I would add. As you said, the asset light strategy protects them, but so too do these valuations. When Lennar is trading at four and a half times, even if earnings fall 50 or 80 percent, their multiple can't be much higher than its historical average. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, these these stocks are cheap, cheap, cheap. And that is because if you look historically, again, people are fighting the war that they had. So they're saying, oh, we're going to dump every home builder and anything to do with home building. And we have seen just cheap valuations across the sector with these guys basically at pennies. Um, So I completely agree with you that uh, valuations could get clobbered and they would probably still be okay. But they still have 18 percent margins. I mean, there's plenty of room there. All right. Let's leave the builders. Turn now to those at the center of the mortgage malaise that's been the lenders. The pure plays like Rocket and Loan Depot down, you know, nearly 90 percent from their highs, tracking refinancing activity almost perfectly. Refi levels are down nearly 80 percent from a year ago. Would you want exposure here? I mean, there are some who claim they are better protected because they do more of the servicing piece of the business. What do you say? Well, there's definitely that's that we've had that conversation about the mortgage servicing and the degree to which um, that kind of matters as as people have to refinance, which this is that time that if you are stuck with a, a, a mortgage that is about to reset, you're going to get a lot of refinancing activity off of that. Um, we're playing Bank of America. We're, ba- we're playing a more uh, diversified play, partially because Bank of America is in the business of of lending to all sorts of products, not just mortgages, um, but also they really are very sensitive to these higher mortgage rates. So their income actually goes up as interest rates go up and they have this really stable um, uh, deposit base that is not nearly as interest rate sensitive. So that basically says that as interest rates go up, Bank of America starts to make some money. Uh, And that's the play that we've decided to go with. Right. So sticking with the bigger guys, they have more levers to pull and uh, not having to make a big bet on some of the smaller uh, lenders and servicers. Okay, so that's the story uh, with the builders and the lenders. Let's turn to the suppliers now, where, again, you could paint a very different story if you wanted to. Home Depot, Lowe's, Sherwin-Williams, yes, they're down 30 percent this year. They also have inflation and labor shortages to contend with. But if they have a multi-year tailwind from the recent flurry of home buying, you'd have to think that could help them weather the storm. Absolutely. And you have to believe that, by the way, which is which we do. We do believe that we're going to have continued home buying, even going into um, this slowdown. Um, You know, Lido Advisors holds Home Depot, and we believe that it is a good value right now relative to its outlook. And if you believe that the home that home buying is not going away, um, then you will naturally have to make adjustments. Um, And quite frankly, even if you think that home buying is going away, it does mean that you're staying in an older home and you're still going to Home Depot. So both sides of that story actually favor um, uh, exposure to to this particular sector. All right. And rate rates from here. I mean, would any of this narrative change for you if, you know, if they're down significantly, obviously that helps. But even if they go up from here. You know, I, I think that that interest rates right now are um, the tail that's wagging the dog in that, you know, the, the inflation that we're experiencing is coming from commodities. So will interest rates really do anything about that? Probably not. Um, uh, and so if interest rates push us into a recession, um, I actually think that we could see the Fed kind of stepping back uh, toward the end of the year and saying, well, maybe that was too much. Uh, so so I don't necessarily see this this sort of prolonged, very high interest rate 
um, uh, experience. You know, we were already seeing the mortgage, we're, we're seeing the 30-year fixed mortgage rates starting to sort of, uh, um, you know, crumble. You said it was going back up, but it was coming back down, right. meaning that it's not quite sure where it's going at this point. Right, <laughs> which so, is true, for a, you know, I, I true think, for a lot of investors <laughs> and for the market. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think this lasts forever. And um, I think the demand is going to is going to last through this interest rate moment. What do you think is better for the financial since you mentioned, you know, Bank of America, JPM names you like here? Would you would you rather see that environment play out or would it be better for them to see one with uh, higher rates than at least where we are right now? Look, stepping back and talking as a macroeconomist, it would be better if we had higher rates. Higher interest rates uh, help uh, investors make better allocation decisions with respect to risk. When rates are too low, it forces you into very risky places in order to get a little bit of yield. Um, it means that as a saver, you're getting paid for that saving. So there's there's a lot of miss. You know, we've been unbalanced for as an economy for 20 years now in terms of interest rates. We really do need to get a little higher. Now that doesn't mean we have to go to eight percent, uh, but but we do need to sort of see higher interest rates uh, in order to keep people from making stupid decisions. Uh, with their investments. <laughs> All right. Gina, thanks so much for your time today. Have a great weekend. <laughs> Gina Sanchez. Thanks, Kelly. You too. Next hour, Power Lunch's Powerhouse Road Trip is going to head to Raleigh, North Carolina for a firsthand look at how the real estate market there could soon favor buyers. And a quick programming note, tune into a CNBC special Taking Stock tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Frank Holland, Josh Brown, and more have your second half playback playbook, she said, for the year. Stay with us. Welcome back. Want to get to one more thing before we go. The Spirit Airlines shareholder vote on its merger with Frontier. It's been delayed again. Philip Bo joins us with the details. And Phil, apparently this is taken as a good sign maybe for JetBlue. Well, it could be, Kelly, if you believe that this means that JetBlue perhaps can strike a deal ultimately with Spirit. But we're a long ways from saying that that's a certainty. At this point, when you look at this deal, it has been postponed. At least the merger vote by shareholders with Spirit and Frontier has been postponed to happen next Friday. We'll see if that holds true. It was supposed to happen last Friday. It didn't. It's supposed to happen today. It didn't. And as you look at these two deals, keep in mind that the JetBlue deal, and both of these are a combination of cash and stock, the JetBlue deal is considered richer at $3.7 billion versus Frontier at $2.6 billion. If it seems like this has been going on for months, that's because it has been. Take a look at how many offers have been made to Spirit by JetBlue that have been rejected. And Frontier, twice accepted by Spirit. Whether or not that means that Frontier ultimately gets a chance for shareholders to vote on remains to be seen. The fact that it's been canceled twice, an indication as you take a look at shares of Spirit, that's an indication that the institutional shareholders have made it clear they do not like this deal, at least the current deal between Spirit and Frontier. So Spirit's management is not even going to bring it to their shareholders at this point. Keep in mind, both of uh, Frontier as well as uh, JetBlue, as you take a look at their stocks, both have offers that include immediate payments to Spirit shareholders. So if you are a Spirit shareholder, one way or the other, if one of these deals is accepted, you get an immediate payment, even if it's ultimately rejected by uh, regulators, which, by the way, Kelly, many believe either of these deals has a low chance of being approved by the Biden administration. <laughs> OK, so uh, all of this for nothing that I mean, is it fair to say, Phil, that JetBlue has the higher price? So the board would obviously have to 
to fa- make that the major factor, but is maybe perceived as being the worst operator. So in the long-term interest of the stock, a, a lot of people would feel more comfortable with it going with Frontier, even at a lower price. Not that it's the worst operator. It's that the management of Spirit has been emphatic for weeks that it does not believe that a deal with JetBlue as currently constructed would be approved by regulators, which then brings up the point, okay, if you ultimately say, we're not going to go with Frontier, we're going to go with JetBlue, how is this deal going to be structured? You're going to have to ask JetBlue to divest even more Hmm. if it's going to make it to the finish line. And a lot of people are questioning if that can happen. All right, Phil, could be could be a lot over nothing. We'll see. Uh, We very much appreciate you following the saga for us, our Phil LeBeau. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.